From the Clock Tower Mountain Air, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in Season 3 as we examine the journey of Christian conversion. This week, we're in the Screwtape Letters, chapters 1 through 10. All right, and spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us to this point, feel free to pause, go read, and come join us. I think people are pretty excited about the screw tape letters. This is one, when they ask us about the podcast, they ask us if or when we're going to talk about the screw tape letters, so I'm excited. Yeah, I I hope we can rise up to the task of all of your expectant friends who have some, for some reason, got the impression that we have something to offer them. I thought you were going to say, do it justice. And I was like, it has done itself justice. That's right. Yeah, we we're don't just here to... appreciating the justice it has done. Uh, so for housekeeping this morning, I uh, kind of want to put Alex on the spot for a second. Where does the screw tape letters fall in the chronology of Lewis's releasing or writing? Yeah, I think it was it was published in 1942. I I do need to confess and come come clean. I did say something. I feel that, like we need a little jingle. It's like Alex confession <laughs> moment. <laughs> something. <laughs> wow. Yeah, if it's that regular, <laughs> just look forward to it every week. Um, I did say in our Paralandra episodes, one of them, that the Screw Tape letters hadn't been written yet. But this was actually published before Paralandra. I'm not sure if that necessarily means that they were written at the. I'm I'm still holding out hope that I may have been correct in where he was in his writing process, and maybe the publications just got switched around. Not a lot of uh, likely hope there. But this comes right before or concurrent with Paralandra. But but pre that hideous strength. Yes. Whoa. And pre-Paralandra. So he already had this idea of macrobes and whatever else in his mind because, you know, in Paralandra they're talking about and also out of the silent planet they're talking about this. Yeah, if we're to assume, and there's a lot of likelihood that C.S. Lewis was a little quicker in his writing and publication, but let's say he was influenced by J.R.R. Tolkien a little bit. He may have been sitting on this idea for a long time. I mean, Tolkien wasn't even going to publish what we have in the Silmarillion. It was his son that published that. So he had this whole this whole world and its history and story that I guess was just for him or his class. I don't know. But we're really glad that we have that. Maybe Lewis had the same idea and then we see it kind of play out more. It'd be between um, Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra, he did write something called The Dark Tower. I can't remember. I can't remember if there are macrobes that are talked about. I don't remember there being, but uh, that one involves looking into this futuristic device that projects like a projector, uh, either either a different timeline or an alternate universe. And the characters that we meet later in that hideous strength, some of them are present there. And then there's other characters that maybe uh, are similar just with different names, but it's an interesting read, but not something that we're going to cover here. All right. So should I jump into summary and themes? Sure, yeah. We've come upon one half of the correspondence of two devils. The letters are written by a senior devil and undersecretary of the Department of Temptation, Screwtape, who is responding to updates and reports from his nephew devil, Wormwood, who is on his first assignment to tempt a military-aged man in Great Britain in the late 1930s and spanning the course of several years by earthly measurement. In the first 10 letters, Screwtape advises on subjects including tempting the human patient by exploitation of the peculiar conditions of embodiment, despite his recent conversion to Christianity, and in the context of the looming uncertainty of the Second World War. Yeah, that uh, summary might be a little misleading since that was mostly editorial, but (laughs) I I can say that because I... (laughs) Because you wrote it. (laughs) Because I wrote it. (laughs) But we're just, you just jump right, we just jump right into one of the letters. So it's like the first page is, we're reading a letter from Screwtape. It doesn't have that that background in history. 
Okay, so in your writing, you mention embodiment, and then you also have this down as theme. So yeah. I have a feeling you've got an axe to grind. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> this is okay. So we're not here to do an in-depth analysis of this book. You can find plenty of that online, and there's probably other podcasts that will take you step by step and really analyze and nitpick every single element of the of these letters and it's it's dense it's it's like one theme to the next to this lesson to that lesson and the the letters aren't are kind of thematic not really i guess like letter number 4 has a lot more to say about prayer than some of the other letters but it really is just this you know flowing conversation one half of it anyway and uh and if we you Dan and i Alex if we have anything to offer to the 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 content of C.S. Lewis writings. It is just our experience of it. And so going through these 10 letters, I was really, this time, um, I guess my mind was really focusing on the relationship and the way that uh, Screwtape keeps talking about humans being embodied. And at one, at one point he says something like, you can exploit them being embodied, but he refers to the embodiment as an advantage that we have. And so it operates in both an advantage, and I'd like to see if we can kind of understand that. I don't really understand that. That's what I'm saying. But also, that's also the methodology by which they take advantage of us. That reminds me, they approach the same thing when it comes to truth and falsehood or argumentation. It's the same concept when he talks about pleasures Yes. That these are all God's creations. And when you move into argument and start using logic and truth, you don't know where that's going to end up. So be careful with your patient because now you're on God's territory and all of these things are God's and they're just distortions of the devils, right? And so that reminds the same thing with the embodiment. That's of God. Yes. And then there's the distortion. Right. So there's their only power is in corruption. And when, when Lewis was asked whether he believed in Satan, he didn't really answer directly because that question almost betrays this idea that you think of Satan as this counterpart or antithesis of God, and he does not believe in a devil that way. There is no negative or evil equivalent of God. God is the supreme ruler. He is the creator, and any evil force is really just a corruption of that. You don't have a creator, an evil creator. You have an evil corruptor. And so it's a lower level of power and ability. I love that. I think that's awesome. I have a theme written down, but based on what you said when you kicked off, that what we really bring to these is our experience with them. I was telling Alex before we started recording, this reading this this time through, was a call to repentance for me in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, I just saw so many pitfalls and traps that I'm falling into and uh, maybe unknowingly. And so I'm, I'm just, I know why people re resonate so much with this book. It's so easy to, to see um, how we intentionally blind ourselves uh, and how we get caught up in pride and how, uh, way more than, you know, like when we're focused so much on this higher level spirituality, but forgetting about your mother, your mother's rheumatoid <laughs> problems, you know, just uh, the, the simplest gospel and application things that sometimes we can step over in our path for self indulgence or gratification or whatever else. And so I'm just, I'm excited to go through some of these that really sit out to me. Maybe it's going to be way too revealing, <laughs> but, but here we go. No, that's, that's great because I think one of the things, and when we get to the great divorce, we'll be tempted to do the same thing. The temptation that I felt was see in your relationships, all of the evil that you're being presented with here, instead of see it in your own heart. And when Lewis was writing this, he said, it wasn't fun, but it was easy because the mat source material was just his own heart. Like it was just so, it flowed almost endlessly. He could have written a thousand pages without any problem, just because all he had to do was look into himself. So he's looking into himself. He's not analyzing. In fact, if you understand some of his personal history, he had 
a a friend that he met in the First World War, Patty Moore, and they made a pact with each other. Since they both had single parents, he uh, Patty had a single mother, and and Lewis had his single father because his mom died when he was really young. That if either died, the other would look after the other's parent, and Patty Moore died. And C.S. Lewis, almost to the <laughs> frustration of all close to him, took very seriously that commitment and lived with this woman, Janie Moore, um, and took care of her. And and a lot of people didn't really like her, but he was like a son to her. And um, he, so it's likely that this that this Christian man and his relation with the mother, it, he's looking into his own relationship with Miss Moore. Hmm. Well, let's take a break and then we'll jump right into the chapters. Yeah. Okay, where do you, where do you want to start? Let's start at the very beginning. Are you thinking of <laughs> Fräulein Maria? <laughs> yes. Singing, yeah. Uh, let's start in, chap- in uh, chapter or letter one. It's interesting. Obviously, it seems like we're kind of thrown into a correspondence that's already been happening or going on. But the first thing, at least, that Lewis decides to write about. What is it? How we disconnect thinking and doing. It's about jargon versus truth and falsehood. And then how we can, uh, what's one of the lines in there was that the devil's work is more about keeping things out of your head than putting things into it. Yeah, I love that line. Yeah. Yeah, what's the, at the very end, he's like, some of you fiends think it's our duty to teach. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Right from the, from the beginning, in the, in the preface, he says, remember the devil is a liar. So don't just take screw tape as an authority. You understand, and you might even have the inside scoop more than he does about his own agenda. And so don't let him, actually, that might be Lewis trying to like, you know, cover his back if he says anything <laughs> that's kind of misleading. <laughs> I can be wrong. <laughs> which is pretty clever. But also realizing that our, what it means to be tempted is to be drawn away from truth, right? They can't create their own truths. And so confusion is the program and, uh, what, who they call the enemy, whether it's the spirit of God or God himself, Melelda, however we want to think of it, maybe Aslan, if you like thinking of an, of a lion whispering in your ear, which is, I don't know, maybe, Terrifying fr- maybe or... kind of frightening, <laughs> if which, it's Aslan, it's which may, might be appropriate. Um, <laughs> but that that's where the clarity comes from. That's where the understanding and where even the logic comes from right and with this one uh screw tape talks about one of his successes which is an atheist who almost uh, seems like was converted by logic and then he realized that instead of focusing on reason and science and evidence he needed to get the man to start seeing the mundane and to term the mundane and the boring the surface and superficial as, as real, real life as real life right so yeah. that obfuscation of reality yeah i lo- avoid real science as it makes them think realities think of realities they cannot see or experience yeah i like i, I don't know if uh reality is a good theme for these yeah. these letters because the idea of reality and what the world and maybe the devils <laughs> who are informing the world um, are trying to get us to think reality is, is everything that's materialistic and superficial rather than all the things that we act as if are real, right? Every a meaning and something deeper, even, even beyond or not beyond, but I'm not just talking about the metaphysical, which is real too, and real in a way that's deeper and more meaningful than physical reality, but also real in a way of our motivations. So talking about our will versus our intellect or fantasy, our will and our desire is more real about our experience than what we think about ourselves and what our intellectual process makes us think about the world. There is something more real and more defining about your behavior 
in your character. And that's your will. Yeah, late, that reminds me of later on, I think, chapter 9 or 10, uh, he Screwtape advises Wormwood to, let, to make sure you avoid letting the patient see temporal f- affairs as material for obedience. Like it exists to, so that we can be tested and be <laughs> and practice obedience, not uh, not because of whatever state our mind be, is or becomes. Yeah, he like you brought up with the with the kind of peculiar dichotomies that that we're presented with when we're seeing seeing the program of corruption is being worried more about what happens to you rather than what you do. When I was reading that part, um, what I thought of, especially since I, my mind was in the space of, okay, he's writing this at the same time that he's writing Paralandra. And remember Ransom's dilemma with confronting the unman, and he gets caught up in his own argument with himself. He has the two voices that are trying to say, well, you know, logically come to a conclusion that he has to, if he's honest with himself and the humans rarely are <laughs> honest, <laughs> not, not any human is ever totally honest, but when he's being honest with himself that, uh, he has to follow through or put an end to what's going on. And he, the other voices, how could you do that? How you, there's nothing you could do about it. And he, he comes to that resolution that by this time tomorrow, I will have achieved the impossible. And he even equates it to something in his own life that I guess there was some embarrassing confession that he had to make and that he, he made that resolution. And it was, we talked about this a little bit in our episode in Paralandra about, um, this almost taking away our idea of free will because we have come to a decision, but it's not taking away free will. It's, it's cementing our will as being in line with God's will. If we decide to yield to God, yeah, the future, as far as we know it, is basically written for us. But because we chose it, that's where our will gets to play a part in it. And Ransom making that choice. And I like that even in Paralandra, he brings it to something that seems mundane, something that seems ordinary, having to go to somebody and make an embarrassing confession. And maybe that, that arena for where to practice virtue is going to happen on in this, what the devils want to see us to think is boring and mundane, but really is the battleground for our souls which is your relationship with your mother, if you're living, you know, or the way that you treat other, your neighbor, rather than how magnanimously you donate to people across the world, you know. One other thing from chapter one, he takes a pot shot again at the, the weekly news media, which we saw a lot in that hideous strength. Um, any, any insight into, first of all, why he seems to harp on just media and news in general. And then he he blames the fact that nowadays having 12 different totally incompatible philosophies is the norm because of the news. And I think you see that a lot now where people have these philosophies and ideas that they claim they're living their life following, but they don't actually sit down and try and follow the logic through because if I did a lot of other philosophies would have to fall by the wayside. If you really believe this thing, you're, you're putting your stake on. Yeah, you can abdicate your own personal responsibility to authority. There's an essay, and any of Lewis's essays will apply to these letter to the screw tape letters, because he goes through almost like every conceivable uh, engagement with your own lived life and a commitment to Christianity. But one that um, I felt was especially applicable to these chapters was uh, his address to a, a group of pacifists. And the, t- the talk is titled, Why I'm Not a Pacifist. So that was pretty bold. It's not really so much about pacifism in whether or not you believe in just wars or your duty to fight in a war. Um, it's just a masterclass in logic. And it's through that logic that he comes to these conclusions, as the title says, that he's not a pacifist. So 
in that process, he identifies that we have, we all have motivations for believing. We would like to think that a lot of it is pure reason is why we're coming to the conclusions that we're coming to. And he says 99 of a hundred beliefs that we have are from authority. And when we yield our belief to something like the media as our authority, it will populate basically all of our beliefs, 99 parts of a hundred of our beliefs. If we yield that authority of understanding truth to any other source. Now, if you could totally trust the media and you understand all the incentives for why the media is telling you what it's telling you, and obviously the media is this general term. So if you're thinking of certain, uh, media of the media, if you're thinking of, uh, the legacy media or mainstream media or social media, however you're thinking about it, it's likely podcast the podcast media or podcast media likely. <laughs> so, right. Exactly. Uh, likely the way that you're consuming these authoritative statements and beliefs, beware that you're not, you're yielding the responsibility of your reason to somebody else that may not have your best interest at heart. And so I think that's where, the focus on the media is something that we really need to be attentive to because it influences a lot, us a lot more than we're willing to say. That reminds me of before we went on the Pints with Jack episode and we were talking about why we don't spend a ton of time talking about the C.S. Lewis backstory of the man because we love C.S. Lewis because he's a signpost that points pretty accurately at Christ. And that's what this is all about. And our ability to determine whether we should rely on authority is, is that authority pointing you back towards the source of all truth? Is it pointing you towards goodness or is it pointing you in any other direction? And that's, I think what Lewis is encouraging here. Right. So our podcast, this, what we're doing right now, we're yielding to Lewis as an authority. And I think one of the reasons I feel comfortable with that yielding is because I know he's yielding to another authority, right? The same authority that I will give total allegiance to. So that idea of, okay, well, how can you tell what authorities are trustworthy? And I would say, if they're willing to tell you, but don't take my word for it, reason it out in your heart, use that 1% of your justifications for your beliefs as much as you can make it bigger than 1%. Use your reason and even the things that I'm telling you, don't just take my word for it. And also the, here's where I got what I'm telling you and kind of direct you to the source. And Lewis is always doing that. That's why I trust him. Yeah. So that's chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, in chapter two, uh, one of the parts that stood out to me was that the enemy allows disappointment to occur on the edge of every human endeavor. And first of all, I think it's really healthy for us to expect that, that going into any big commitment, there's the excitement. And I'm really bad at this <laughs> is I'm, I'm fast. I'll, you know, I get excited quickly about uh, the prospect of tackling a new project or whatever else, but then the rubber meets the road, the real work has to be done and it gets hard. And and I like how their point, the screw tape is pointing out that there's opportunity for the devils in these moments, but also there's real danger when, when the human being recognizes it's tough and just keeps rolling. Yeah. Yeah. I like to define myself to other people as being a dreamer, but the follow through is difficult. Isn't that... <laughs> Isn't that a great way to like make yourself feel good about this obviously general temptation and difficulty of being a embodied human? Yeah. Is that we have this, it's so easy to think of, oh, I want to learn to play, play that instrument. You listen to somebody play an instrument really well. And it's like, oh, I wish I could play that instrument. There's the, uh, I don't know if it's apocryphal or legend or, ever, or really even true, but there's this one, um, story of a person going up to a concert pianist after their recital or whatever and saying, I wish I could play like you. And the person responds, no, you don't. 
because if you really <laughs> wished you could play like me, you would have done and, you know, lists off all of the effort and all of this drudgery that is brought up here as actually what the desire is. It's bring he, or she, whoever the, this, this concert pianist is bringing this idea of the fantasy. If we learn from, I can't remember what letter, but that concentric rings of fantasy and intellect and will at the center. And if all of you, what you desire is just populating the out, outward edge of the rind of that fruit of concentric rings, and you just stay on the surface where you can just take advantage of the, the, the dreams, the imaginary superficial virtues, instead of actually doing the difficult thing of being virtuous, that's not your will. It's what you want to be perceived of. It's what you want on the superficial. And I think what Jesus says to that type of mindset, therefore you have your reward. Yeah. Virtues even loved and admired will not keep a man from our father's house. <laughs> In fact, the, the even people who... Makes uh, them more entertaining. Yeah, makes them, yeah, makes them more entertaining when they get there. Well, I love that because also we all have things uh, and... I think Screwtape points this out. We all have things that are pushed to the periphery and we all have things that we bring into the center of our will. Right. And so in some area of your life, you are doing the drudgery or the work. Like at some point, sin becomes drudgery. Right, exactly. Because you know what has, I mean? So we're all yeah. bringing things in and we're all pushing things out. It's just, what are you using your agency to choose to bring in? Yeah. In fact, Screwtape even says that this is kind of like part of their program. Yeah. Is for anything that is good for them, like temptation, something that will destroy our souls, make that um, sort of thing the object. Make it, make it totally, somebody be absorbed in it, not intellectually, but kind of like really engrossed in it. And when for, you see a woman, keep it focused, fixed on the woman. Right. Don't have it be, oh, I'm entering the state called lust, lust right. and make it introspective. Versus when it's good, we want, we want to keep it outside. Wait, is that right? Yes. Uh, so yes. for example, when you're starting to feel humble. Keep it intellectual. Keep it intellectual. That's right. Start thinking, oh, I'm feeling humil I'm feeling humble right now. I wonder why I'm feeling so humble <laughs> instead of focused on God or your neighbor. Yeah. It's funny. My man's doing this mental gymnastics right now about like, okay, we're trying to understand these principles and these concepts and wait, what perspective are we in? Who's we? Oh, we is bad. We's the opposite, you know, and trying to figure out. Okay. So, so just so we can distill it, if it's something good that you should experience, stop intellectualizing it and just experience it. Go into the light, look by the light, stop analyzing the light. But if it's something that you don't want to have a hold of your soul, an appetite or an addiction or something that's some general vice or even specific vice. Get introspective. Get introspective. Push it out of your will into the intellect and into the fantasy even. Yeah. Uh, make it something that's that's far away from your heart. Does that work? Yeah. Is that good advice? Works for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, we have to go into chapter three because this deals with our close personal relationships. And this is one of those areas that I thought I got to work on this is how Lewis goes through like three or four different things with how he wants Wormwood to work with his patient and how Glubose, I think that works with his mom and how they need to be sowing discord between this in this inside of this relationship. One of them I loved was, Make sure that everything you say should be taken at its word, exactly what you said. And everything they say should be interpreted with the utmost sensitivity and whatever else. So you can, at the same time as being, you can be offended by the fact that they took offense as well as being offended by everything they say. If they say something that there's no, no offensive thing in the thing that they said, but they looked at you the wrong way, or you can, you can read into their motives then do that, but never do that for yourself. Always, you know, because one of the, one of the things, because we, um, we can't, can't see, see ourselves. ourselves. Yeah. So that's easy to do. <laughs> and it's interesting. It is really easy to do. We have this idea of intellectual empathy of being able to 
put ourselves in other people's positions. And we're always aware of when we're doing that because it's a mental process. But to make that a part of our will and make it habit is so much more foreign. It's not very common in my own experience that I'm by matter of habit taking on somebody else's perspective. And so hopefully I'd get there and I'd maybe say the same thing because I probably wouldn't be aware of it. But I'm always aware of the times that I'm intellectually empathizing with people <laughs> because I'm making myself aware. I'm trying to be aware. I'm trying to virtue signal and do that virtue flex. So it is interesting that apparently it's very easy. And if you look back at, if you're really honest, which we seldom are. Seldom are. <laughs> empathy is a much rarer practice, at least intellectual empathy is a much rarer practice than I think we give ourselves credit for. I like that Screwtape encourages him to have him focus when he's praying for his mom on her soul and on her sins and not focus on the rheumatoid or just the daily problems that this person that you live with is dealing with. It's keep people as abstract and as much in the fantasy and intellect instead of actually engaging with what is on the surface of that, their life, which is an interaction sometime when they bother you. Maybe stop praying for people so much and pray for treating people better yourself. Pray, pray, for, pray that you will be better <laughs> and have more strength to help other people. And obviously don't stop praying for people, but pray that other people will be able to. I think this is one of those things like you have to get outside of the fantasy and the intellectual, just help her. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. Just, just stop thinking about whether you're a good person for helping or whether she's good enough to deserve your helping and just, just This is a good thing to, to lose, <laughs> stop being intellectual, to lose yourself in the experience of love, of, of experiencing a relationship. Yeah. Have your will aligned with, I want to help people around me. Yeah. That's easy enough, right? Yeah, you got that. <laughs> okay, let's take a break. Okay. Okay, we've already been talking a little bit about prayer, so jumping in chapter four kind of goes into more depth here. Yeah, this is a place that I know I need to repent for the way that I pray. Well, I, I, I thought it was really interesting talking about manufactured feelings and i can think of lots of my prayers as a younger person where i was on my knees trying to manufacture a feeling yeah and i don't i i don't think it conscientiously went away but i don't pray like that anymore i don't know why it changed but i just say i don't pray uh with i i'm not as focused on what is my heart feeling as i say yeah. this prayer it's just more can I try and somehow humble myself enough to actually approach this prayer in the way that you want me to? Like that's more the approach um, nowadays, I guess. Right. And I think part of the problem with that manufactured feelings, not that feelings are bad, but they're not, virtue isn't a feeling. They're not reliable <laughs> as a well, source sure. of truth. They're not reliable. We're all humans. We're, yeah, we're subject to so many things, but also so so often it's so easy for us to get caught up in thinking that courage is feeling brave. Courage is not feeling brave. It's doing the thing that you don't want to do when you don't feel brave. I think there is a quote by C.S. Lewis about courage is not itself a virtue, but every virtue at its testing point. And so it's not about seeking Christianity is not just about seeking out good feelings. And a lot of people have that whole framework. Sometimes my, my framework of Christianity is it makes me feel good. I, when I say it out loud, of course, it sounds so ridiculous that I wouldn't stay there if I were bold enough to make that bad <laughs> motivation intellectual enough to have to confront it, but it's not a feeling and we'll get there in the last or in our quoted text, which I, I picked from chapter eight, just in a bit. But if we can get our minds kind of in that space, that what it means to pray and to be filled with the spirit and to follow out in our duty as a Christian is not to feel all the Christian emotions, whatever we might say those are. 
It's not about feeling brave, not praying for patience so that I feel patient, but in the moment of agitation that I decide, despite not feeling that way, despite feeling very irked and agitated, that's when I can be patient rather than feel patient. What do you think about, it's talking about whether they kneel or not to kneel, whatever their bodies do impacts their souls because see, they're animals. See, they're trying to use our bodies against us, but can you see in the reflection of that statement something that is so, such a blessing about having a body? We have this mechanism for influencing our souls, which means that if we're not feeling love, we can use our bodies to go serve and then love will follow. Hmm. If we're not feeling penitent, if we're not feeling like our souls are connected with God, we can get on our knees and pray out loud. And that process of using our body, physically using our body, will change, will invite maybe the changes that we want, maybe not in an emotional way, but I think in an emotional way too. <laughs> it's like we get the blessing of actually the spirit coming, but that doesn't mean that feelings are bad when, you know, my little <laughs> monologue before. The feelings are just morally neutral. They're just our body feeling things. Maybe you can dumb it down like frost would to a just chemical experience, <laughs> right? But it's nice when feelings kind of assist, yeah, right? And I think sometimes, <laughs> now we might not always be in the, that crest of the wave. We might be in the trough of our faith. And maybe the trough of our faith is none of the feelings are accompanying our will. But I know that this is true, especially when, you know, saying nightly prayers with little kids and that conflict of, oh, do I have to kneel, you know? I don't know if you have this interaction. I do. And yeah. I say, yep. <laughs> yep. And why? And it's, I think we know, we know that once we do that. And what's interesting is I don't get a lot of complaint after the fact. No. Oh, why did you make me kneel? You know, it's just that, or even with myself, I'll be like, oh, my body's bigger than these kids. <laughs> it's harder for me to kneel. Maybe I can just, you know, we've got a beanbag chair in their room. And so well, maybe I'll just slouch over on the beanbag chair while they do the prayer. I've already learned this. You know, you can see all of these things that screw tape is <laughs> identifying as their expertise playing on me. If I were to think that that has no effect on my spiritual health, I'm lying. The last thing I wanted to say about prayer was when he's talking about how, you know, they had one patient who thought God was up in a corner or God was in a crucifix or, you know, and how uh, the real prayer is you either have to totally throw out whatever concoction you come up with or at least recognize it as purely subjective, whatever idea you have of God and then approach prayer. And then, and then, you know, that's the prayer that screw tape and wormwood are the most afraid of is when we approach God and say, you know, I'm praying to who you know yourself to be and that I can, you know, I am only hoping you'll give me some glimpse into it so I can try and that type of real humility in prayer. Uh, reading this chapter just made, it uh, was motiva motivating to go and rethink how I'm approaching prayer. Yeah, there's a caution to needing certainty of even who God is before you pray to him. And I think allowing yourself to be moldable in that place, that's what prayer's for. And I don't want to say that's the purpose of prayer, but that's a purpose is to put yourself in almost this, if you want to think of it as meditative space, but it's a moldable space. So my, my grandpa was an atheist and he, and he will go back to this experience and he's passed away now, but um, he's written about this experience and would share that this was the moment that he realized he did believe in God as he was driving on a stormy night, his truck slid off the road. And as it went off the road, he called out, oh God. Mm -hmm. And he realized in that moment, like this is an atheist who doesn't study about God and doesn't care to know about him and whatever else called out to some being that, that it wasn't a call to somebody he felt like he knew, but just to... <laughs> to who he knew himself to be. Right. Uh, and that's what the when he realized, like, well, if I believe in him, I better go learn about him. 
And so that's when he that's cool. started studying. There's a line that God, or you know, they call him the enemy, works from the inside out. Even if you can intellectualize that you don't believe that if you let yourself open to it at all, God can affect your will. I think that's why the, at the beginning of the first letter, he's like, stop, don't, don't enter into argument. <laughs> Arguments not our strong, you know, keep him off that ground. That, that's right. Remember Weston saying to the, to Malachandra, I'm not, I didn't come here to argue logic. Yeah. Right. And so that if you can, that, that honesty, right. And that's a, that's a CS Lewis experience is being totally committed to honesty. You're playing on the Lord's ground. So two quick things. One's from chapter five and one's from chapter seven. Um, chapter five, we get this emeth moment where we're talking about how the enemy does this annoying, I can't, what does he say? This, this annoying or pesky thing of letting these little bipeds, uh, giving them credit when they're trying to do the right thing and it's not something the, the enemy or God actually approves of but their heart was in the right place and they worked for it. And so he, they get all the credit. And it just reminds me of the sweet experience that you have with Emmeth and Aslan when he's realized he's been worshiping Tash. And I, the magnanimity, the glory of what God puts before us is exactly that, that, that total understanding mercy of if, if we're trying to follow the light of Christ, if we're trying to follow goodness, that he's, we're going to get every ounce of credit that a merciful God can possibly give to us and how baffling that is for these, for the devils. Right. Um, and then the last one for chapter seven was that the only good extreme is a devotion to God. The <laughs> screw tape encourages any other extreme, but not devotion to God. Right. In other way, in other, um, in devotion to God, you say the moderation in all things. Don't say moderation in your pursuit of pleasure. Don't say moderation in other corrupt or even surface level behaviors, habits and, and, uh, and appetites. But in your devotion of God, remember that one virtue, moderation in all things. So you can see how it works against itself. And I was going to say about the, um, you know, the emeth principle of God, God taking your will f for its word and giving you the benefit of the doubt. And I know that I'm tempted to then take that and move it out to the intellect and say, well, you know, if I just do my best, God will make up for the rest. And, <laughs> and then, and then I'll use that as an excuse, keeping out, keeping all the, the, the vices in my heart and all the virtues in the intellect and say, I'm really trying my best. And I really, you know, like, um, like Feverstone, never really dislike anybody unless they bore me. <laughs> and then who could help but dislike that person, right? Even God would dislike that person. No, that's I think true. that's that's it. It's important to remember that although Emmeth was brave, he like when he had the opportunity to meet Tash, he walked into the shed. When he, yeah. you know, he was, it was just as hard for him to live out the virtues that he saw as right in following Tash as it would be for any follower of Christ or follower of Aslan. It was just as hard. And he was putting that work into practice and that's why he got the credit. As soon as the evidence was there, he s switched immediately. So yeah, I think it is in chapter six where that concentric circles of will to intellect to fantasy and this is also in response to the looming fear of being drafted into a war. Yeah. And that from what he knows about this young man, pacifism is probably the key to get him to, to be evil, not patriotism. And the real trick is, like you said, it's not about pacifism or patriotism, but it's about instead of seeing the current moment as your cross to bear, pushing that outwards to uncertainty and to all the other crosses you potentially would bear and to almost prematurely start trying to bear other crosses outside of just now. Right, being hypothetically virtuous rather than actively virtuous. Yeah. Yeah. Push it out into the fantasy. Yeah.
Hmm. That's that's going to be a good takeaway principle because I feel yeah, like I, I almost did this during the podcast <laughs> and you called me on it, which was great. Well, I, I, I didn't even realize that this, the, the concentric circles that he identifies of will, intellect, and fantasy, how that has, I, even until we started talking, I didn't realize, oh, that's, that's it. That's what we're talking about Yeah, is how to get things into the will, what things to get into the will and how to get things out of the will and what things to get out of the will. What do you, what do you think about with the theme that I'd originally written down and then jumped over was they've talked about multiple times, the devil seeing humans as food. And so in chapter eight, he specifically makes the comparison for us, humans are food. We want to consume them. We want to bring them into this damnation pool thing that you talk about <laughs> uh, versus God. Lake of the fire terms. and brimstone, I think, is the scriptural. <laughs> there we image. go. Yeah. Uh, versus God who wants to take servants and turn them into sons, who wants them to have free will, who wants to have them to have their identity and have them giving their will voluntarily. What is that contrast? How is that instructive for you? Well, they're both making us servants. Remember how we were talking about like at some point, Jane's going to have to yield. Mark's going to have to yield. We're going to have to yield to something. If we think we can be like Feverstone and pretend that we can actually be the ones making the plays and being important and rising to the top of the pyramid. Uh, If there are macrobes, there's no top of the pyramid for you. They're on the top, right? Now, you could say that Meleldil and his ilk are macrobes as well, not only the dark ones of Thulcandra. But if we really are not the culmination and apex of all intelligence and experience and existence and consciousness in the universe, then at some point we're going to have to be subservient to something. Do we want to be subservient to the thing that is making us a tool for evil? Are we going to make ourselves a servant to the thing that's trying to make us like it, like him? Servants in order to become sons or servants in order to become food, like cattle, I think is the comparison. Realizing that all of the corruption, all of the motivation to put your neighbor down so that you can climb the ladder, even in virtue signaling flexes, is all because you are, you've got lodged in your will, in your heart, this idea that you can be on the top and rule over all. Rule in hell rather than serve in heaven, which is the Milton line. And I think that's the way that Screwtape is pl- putting out that same program. So there's the line that, so there's the line moderated religion is just as good as no religion. Why do you think Screwtape thinks he can, <laughs> I, I would think he'd want to keep, keep you out, but it sounds like he's fine if you're in, as long as he's got you where he wants you. It's those 12 <laughs> perspectives that are mutually exclusive and contradictory. He wants you to believe something that it, that you can never make true. You can never really believe because it's it's incompatible with other things that you believe. Oh, the process and the and the battle of my soul is the most important thing. Jesus came to earth and redeemed mankind, and we and the only way back to the presence of the Father is through Him. Well, wow, that's a pretty extreme statement. And it's at a pretty extreme belief. And so I'm not going to bother my neighbor with my beliefs. Don't talk about politics and religion with your neighbor because it's not tactful. What? (laughs) You know, there's even this uh, uh, Pendulette, if you know who he is. He's a a pretty outspoken atheist. He's a a magician, Penn and Teller, if you've heard of Penn. Oh, yeah. Um, Anyway, he's a pretty interesting guy. But he's very outspokenly atheist, but he's quoted as saying, I don't respect the non-proselyting Christian. Because if you actually believe that heaven and hell are at stake with your choices. Speak up. <laughs> you, better tell, you better tell people about <laughs> it. You know, and this is what I, it's difficult for me too, because it's like, oh, if I'm going to really like sound the alarm, blow the trumpet, I better believe what I'm doing. And obviously there's ebbs and flows 
as chapter eight talks about with my own conversion, my own commitment and our, our bodies and just experience with time and that, you know, the enemy who is God in this case can work with us even in the troughs. In fact, even some of his most his, his best his, servants his have best been servants. through the deepest troughs and of the stayed longest. in the yeah in the troughs the longest. Um, so I, I don't think it's like you can use this as a, a threshing litmus test of like these are the good people, the people that are you know on the corners of the streets with the end is nigh posters in the in the air sort of thing, and the bad people are all the people who are a little lukewarm. Um, therefore God will spew them out of the mouth. I think that we need to understand where we are and be true to our beliefs, but it's serious business. The business of heaven is very serious. And I have a very hopeful outlook on people's progress and access to the gospel. And I just want to be part of that access, right? So maybe I'm mitigating it too much. Maybe this is something I need to repent for. Maybe I need to, you know, go on, on street corners more often. Yeah. I, I think, I think one of the points Lewis brings us back to the congregation that he's with and the, you know, the storekeeper with the oily expression and whatever else. And I think it's just, a, he, he makes the comment, you know, there might be some of the enemy's greatest warriors sitting in those pews and you don't know it. And so I think that's the important thing is, is we, it's not helpful, that helpful to like look outside and wonder, well, they're not on a street corner, so they must not be the, the valiant, right. uh, valiant follower, not it's, it's look inside when it comes to the good, look at your will and how is your will driving your actions? Uh, you know, how are you proselyting? Um, I think that's what's. Yeah. My temptation is to keep it superficial and intellectual. Yeah. Rather than piano moving. I think <laughs> our, our most humans, we keep it too intellectual. Right. So, I like that. Last one in chapter 10, and then we can jump into our quote from the book. He makes a comment about Puritanism, about how this word has been such a useful, impactful tool to get people to stop following the enemy. And I think this is really important for what, well, just, we're, what we're experiencing today. Right. And what we're just talking about, about what is your devotion? What is your belief in this serious business of heaven? What is it really requiring of us? And we want to say, oh, but if I'm going to go out proselyte, that's kind of fundamentalist stuff. Yeah. Uh, which is, I think, the puritanical, our, our modern version of puritanical. Now we still use that word, but I think, you know, the definitions have kind of shifted over. And that's, a, a, little more that's a really good point. Like, look for what are the other words that... If somebody from the outside labeled you with that bigot, I've been <laughs> that called, you would be terrified. Right. I've been called <laughs> orthodox before. And yeah. I thought that was, oh, interesting that that has now been made into a pejorative term and, and placed on somebody. And, you know, even depending though, on who called. Say, I guess that's true. That's true. Depending yeah, on who labeled yeah. you with it. <laughs> right. And maybe I should think, who have I called orthodox instead of pointing the finger at somebody else? And it's likely that I have in my mind people who I think are a little too orthodox or too fundamentalist or too puritanical. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's, it's important. Uh, and there's actually, I was listening to a sermon where they were, or reading, I think I was reading a sermon where they were talking about how important it would be to list out the virtues of Christ that you want to develop. Study them in the scriptures, understand them. Because if you have the list, if you understand what you're trying to be, because that's what he goes on to say, the word Puritanism was useful in keeping people away from the virtues of propriety, chastity, sobriety. And so if you understand the virtues that you're trying to bring into your will, then it doesn't matter what label someone sticks, <laughs> tries to stick on you. You're not going to let that deter you from trying to live out the virtues you're trying to bring into your will. So if it makes you puritanical, if it makes you fundamentalist, if it makes you uh, orthodox, that's irrelevant. Yeah. The only thing problematic about somebody who is puritanical or fundamentalist is if they forget the two great commandments in the process of following their 
hyper their list of virtues yeah <laughs> list of their own virtues right and the ultimate one is love god and second is like unto it love your neighbor so the, i i think that's where the real problem lies and then people who want to draw away from devotion will corrupt that and yeah. maybe i say people i should say devils yeah so yeah it's difficult this is this is hard i feel like in this conversation i'm like butting up with this argument in my own head it's like don't be a zealot don't <laughs> you know right there there's another term to add to the list yeah <laughs> don't be a zealot don't um take it so seriously and maybe and and all these things are well there is truth in give people the benefit of the, of the doubt let people be on their own journey don't force them to be at the mile marker that you think you're at, you might not be that far either, <laughs> right? But also be forgiving, uh, uh, exhibit, <laughs> maybe not exhibit, but practice these virtues, these characteristics of Christ that don't say to yourself, nobody's perfect, so I don't need to practice being like Jesus. No, pretend, don't pretend. Tend on being like Jesus. That's what he's trying to make you into a son, how detestable that he's making these bipeds like himself, right? And if we're going to be made like him, obviously we can't do that on our own merits. It's his grace that does it for us, but that's our object. And we need to keep that in mind, especially when we're dealing with people nagging us like <laughs> somebody else's mom that we've devoted our <laughs> our life to or something. I think that's a perfect way you, you are wrapping it up in the thought of the moderation in all things principle, which I think is brought in to fight puritanical behavior or whatever. The golden mean is about that devotion to God. It's not a devotion to yourself. It's not what you think you're creating yourself to be. It's a devotion to God. Everything you do is should be an expression of our love for him, of our obedience to him. It's not about you. And if you if, if it cannot be about you, then it's not puritanical. But it's hard for humans to walk that line well. Yeah. <laughs> so have a lot of humility, have a lot of grace, have a lot of, uh, you're going to need a lot of grace. <laughs> we need a lot of grace. Let's play the part from the end of chapter eight. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. We can drag our patients along by continual tempting, because we design them only for the table, and the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk, and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. The reader I have for the audiobook version that I'm using is Ralph Cosham. He's a common voice you'll hear in these books that still obeying when you don't feel like it. I think that's what we're talking about. That's the difference between obedience and feeling obedient. Mm -hmm. It's a good reminder that, that God doesn't tempt us to virtue. Yeah. He can't, he's not controlling our will. And a good way to help identify maybe truth in your life are the good things that you don't want to do. You're not tempted to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing makes you want to move the piano, but you're still showing up. Um, yeah, it also makes me reflect on the trough periods of my life where I wasn't as faithful or wasn't as, I didn't turn to him the way I should have. And then the times that I did, and those have been sometimes in hindsight, I was given more light and knowledge in those moments when I, when I stayed faithful in the trough 
I, I guess I, I can just, I can see those moments as I look backwards and I obviously know there's going to be more going forwards and it just, it increases my resolve and commitment to wanting to just really drive some of these principles into my will. Yeah. Cause more troughs are coming. More troughs are coming. Thank you for being in our book club. We hope you'll continue with us. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainair.media, M-T-N-A-I-R. And if you'd like to leave us a review, we'd love that. If you'd like to maybe leave a comment on the podcast and let us know which one of the chapters was your favorite or which one of the lines from Screw Tape really stood out to you, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. And we're always looking for those audio clips and emails and messages that we can share on the podcast because we'd love your insight. Next week we'll be in 11 through 20. 11 through 20. Um, thanks for coming back. We're glad to be back. Taking even a little break for us. We were champing at the bit. Is that what it is? Champion? Chomping? Is it chomping? Chomping. Chomping. <laughs> What's champing? It sounds like something you do on a soccer field. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, we hope you'll, for, for people who have come here for the first time, welcome. And thanks for coming back, everybody who did. Yeah, welcome to season three. Yeah. We made and, it. And we'll see you next week. See you next week.